1996, Bill Gates said, content is king. And boy was he right. Three decades later, it still occupies the throne. For lawyers, law firms, and companies serving the legal industry, content marketing and thought leadership marketing are must if they want to build their books of business or increase their revenues. Hi, I'm Wayne Pollock. I'm a former AmLaw 50 senior associate who discovered the world of content marketing and thought leadership marketing and hasn't looked back. In each episode of this podcast, I interview lawyers and legal industry in-house marketers who are doing big things with their content marketing and thought leadership marketing. This is Legally Contented. Welcome to episode number 27 of Legally Contented. I'm your host, Wayne Pollock. One of the great things about content marketing and thought leadership marketing is that it allows lawyers to dive deep into an aspect of the area of law they practice and position themselves as an even bigger authority on their area of law than if they simply covered the basics of that area of the law. What the hell am I talking about? I'll give you an example, courtesy of my guest on this episode, Kirk Jenkins. Kirk is a senior counsel at Arnold and Porter K. Scholler in San Francisco. He is an appellate attorney and he maintains two blocks, California Supreme Court Review and Illinois Supreme Court Review. Now, based on those two titles, you might be thinking, well, gee, Kirk covers decisions from the California Supreme Court and the Illinois Supreme Court, and he gets to position himself as an authority on those two courts by looking at what the courts say in their substantive decisions. And you would be wrong, because Kirk's blogs focus on the application of data analytics to appellate decision-making. He is looking at numbers and data regarding these two courts, not the substantive decisions the courts are making and the new law that they might be creating. That's what I'm talking about. When I say content marketing and thought leadership marketing allows lawyers to dive deep into an aspect of the area of law they practice, yet become perceived as a greater authority over the entire area of law they practice. Kirk was a great guest. Enjoy our conversation. Kirk Jenkins, welcome to Legally Contented. Please introduce yourself for our audience. I am uh, Kirk Jenkins. I'm a uh, senior counsel with the Appellate and Supreme Court practice in the uh, San Francisco office of Arlen Porter K. Scholler. Uh, Kirk, I appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to chat with me. And I want to cover your California Supreme Court review and your Illinois Supreme Court review blogs. I think they're really interesting what you're doing, the way you're using data, the way you're using content marketing with an appellate practice to, to build your brand and hopefully bring some clients in the door. But I would be remiss if we didn't first discuss your legal career. It spans, what, four decades now? But yeah. fascinating to me, you started off at Skadden in the 80s. And I'm wondering if you can tell those of us who did not come of age as lawyers in the 80s, what working at a big law firm was like generally in the 80s, but especially at a firm like Skadden when M&A was just going off the rails there. Well, um, I had the advantage. I was a uh, uh, litigator rather than a uh, mergers and acquisitions specialist, but I had the advantage of my um, office mate the first year that I shared a, uh, an office with who has uh, now been my wife for 30 years, um, uh, was doing mergers and acquisitions and spending a lot of time in New York. So I kind of had a, a front row seat uh, for the whole thing without having to go through uh, 
there is no question that the uh, the world has changed in profound ways since then. That was a uh, a world that uh, was was kind of always in emergency mode, uh, and uh, there were such frankly huge amounts of money at stake that it was um, it was not a particularly rate sensitive world. It was not a particularly expense sensitive world. There were gigantic amounts of money at stake. So it was uh, your only job is to be right. So that was uh, that was interesting. And there was a certain um, swagger about uh, being there in those days that I'm sure uh, annoyed some people. But there is a. Um, uh, a certain comfort level, particularly when you come in as a very young associate in joining a team that goes into um, uh, every case, every uh, uh, litigation, every everything with the unspoken assumption, uh, we're going to win because they were uh, uh, they were brilliant and incredibly hardworking lawyers and uh, they frequently did win. Uh, but there's no question that it's it's an entirely different world today than it was back in those days. I'm curious who married up, the litigator or the transactional associate in terms of you and your <laughs> wife? So you can hold that answer to yourself if you don't feel comfortable sharing publicly. Uh, there's no question that I married above myself by yeah. a wide margin. But uh, uh, a quick story, we announced our um, resignation and our engagement on the same day. And it was an interesting exercise in firm culture to see how quickly the the, uh, the story got around. That's so funny. That's a heck of an announcement. Please turn over for page two. You've practiced at a number of firms over the course of your four decades or so that would make, I think, partner recruiters, their eyes tear up. You obviously started at Skadden, as we just said. You spent time at the firm that's now Frost, Brown, Todd. You spent time at Sedgwick, at Horvitz and Levy, and now you're at Arnold and Porter, Kay Schuller. Can you talk to me a little bit about your journey from one firm to the other and what are the kinds of things that motivated you or maybe signified to you that it was time for a change? And did you look at different things as you grew in your legal career in terms of what made a particular firm attractive versus perhaps earlier in your career? Well, the interesting thing was that it was a um, uh, different choice for different reasons each time. Uh, the first, uh, leaving Skadden, uh, I can answer that one very simply. I was getting married. <laughs> uh, and, and she was leaving, so there was no chance. I was uh, uh, I was staying, even though to this day I have the greatest respect for uh, uh, Skadden. Um, uh, the, uh, the firm in Kentucky, I'm a... Uh, uh, native-born Kentucky, and my family goes back a couple of hundred years in uh, uh, Kentucky. So um, uh, I was kind of a uh, quote-unquote member of that club uh, when I uh, uh, came in. Uh, that, again, was a different world back in those days. That was the days when it was called Brown, Brown Todd, and Habern rather than Frost, Brown, Todd. Uh, so it was not really a regional law firm back in those days. Um, I left uh, uh, Brown Todd uh, for the simple reason that I had an opportunity to do um, uh, appellate law at uh, Cedric. I had uh, always enjoyed uh, appellate law, but I had not gotten deep enough into it to under to really understand what the national market for it was. 
and I just happened to be talking to some folks from the uh, the Cedric firm, and uh, one of the litigation partners asked me, yeah, "Have you ever thought about appellate work?" Uh, and I said, "Well, yeah, but those practices are all in D.C." And she said, "Do I have someone to introduce to you?" <laughs> and uh, she introduced me to um, one of my predecessors as uh, national chair of the uh, uh, the practice. And uh, three months later, I was. Uh, uh, working at Cedric, um, the departure from Cedric was involuntary in the sense that the firm was closing. So, uh, <laughs> uh, as I told somebody, when the water starts lapping around your toes, it's time to look for the lifeboats. Uh, uh, Horvitz was a uh, uh, a change because it's an appellate-only law firm. Uh, and uh, interestingly, um, I kind of left for a, a spin on the reason that I joined. Uh, I had known them. Uh, I had known everybody at Horvitz for years and years and years through an organization called the California Appellate, uh, Academy of Appellate Lawyers. Um, so it was a very comfortable world to be among a, a group of uh, appellate lawyers. But eventually, I had um, clients offering me. Uh, engagements that the firm couldn't possibly take because there were no uh, trial lawyers in the firm and it was a relatively small firm. Uh, so that led to uh, Arlen Porter, uh, who uh, we we have several of everything here. So, <laughs> so there, there's pretty much no chance that you can be uh, uh, offered anything by a uh, client or potential client that it, even if it's not in your wheelhouse, it's guaranteed that there are people somewhere in the firm that it is absolutely in their wheelhouse. And, and that's paid off in the time that I've been here. So it's been, a, uh, it's been an evolutionary process. And that was my follow-up question for you about your appellate practice, which is, given today the expansion of firms across the country, across the world, and many firms like Arnold & Porter have a number of practice groups underneath their umbrella, including appellate, what is the national slash international appellate market like these days when theoretically, if you go to a large enough law firm, which might be one of the top 100 law firms in terms of size, you're going to have most likely an appellate practice. But I'm curious, you are obviously in the weeds there. What is the appellate market these days, given the size and growth of large law firms? Well, the uh, the most fundamental answer to your question is it is uh, centered in uh, three geographic areas, Washington, D.C., obviously, uh, Illinois, in particular, Chicago, where the uh, the big firms have always had appellate practices and um, California, uh, the Los Angeles area and the San Francisco area. It has gotten beyond that a little bit. Uh, but the, uh, the, the perpetual tension uh, in the, uh, the idea of uh, appellate practitioners and appellate specialists is all litigators love appellate work, whether they do it full time or not. And uh, there are people that it's, uh, with all due respect to uh, my, my colleagues and former colleagues, uh, it's in their interest to push back against the notion that it's something that requires a specialist to do it at the absolute top level. So uh, if you look, you have to look at those um, uh, websites of uh, firms around the country. The people in our appellate group are appellate specialists. They, that's what they do all day long. 
but uh, there are groups out there. It's kind of a, a marketing thing to have an appellate group these days. But the truth is uh, a lot of them spend 10%, 20%, 25% of their time doing appellate work as opposed to 75 to 100%. So uh, it, it varies from one firm to the next is, your, is the answer to your question. What advice would you give younger lawyers, junior lawyers who have an interest in appellate work? They're at a firm where maybe a, a appellate practice is not booming or where they are viewed as being too junior to ascend into an appellate group at their firm. Can you be a second, third, fourth year associate and be viewed as welcome into an appellate practice? Or do you think that you've got to either litigate for a little bit longer at the trial level or grow some gray hair before you can be seen as an appellate lawyer in the eyes of the decision makers at firms with booming appellate practices? Uh, the answer is uh, neither one. In our group, uh, we uh, uh, recruit uh, judicial clerks uh, to join our group. Uh, if anything, the uh, uh, the issue with appellate groups around the country is they tend to be overly top heavy, which always uh, creates a problem with um, uh, managing your teams and uh, managing uh, billable fees. But uh, we we absolutely welcome uh, younger attorneys here. And it's a matter of. Uh, we give because the firm Arnold Porter has a booming uh, pro bono practice. Uh, we routinely give associates the opportunity to argue uh, appeals to uh, state appellate courts and uh, uh, federal appellate courts uh, appeals that, quite candidly, they would not get a chance to argue if it was a uh, a, a big corporate client who who would naturally insist on the. Uh, uh, the senior person, but absolutely, we uh, we bring those folks in and uh, uh, pay very careful attention to bringing them along as as quickly as we can. Uh, advice for appellate uh, young lawyers who want to get into the business: uh, I would recommend it in the highest possible terms. We need new uh, younger blood in the business, but get into it with your eyes wide open. And we can talk about this in greater detail if you like. Uh, in, in a moment, but um, uh, business development in the uh, uh, for an appellate specialist raises challenges that uh, litigators don't face. So understand what you're getting into. We'll follow up on that, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask you if there's an analog with oral arguments in appellate cases that exists with trials today, which is you often hear younger attorneys or even more seasoned attorneys lament the fact that younger attorneys don't get as much trial practice, don't get as much on your feet practice because there are fewer and fewer trials, especially in civil litigation these days. Based on the numbers that you see, either personally, anecdotally, or studies you're reading that are perhaps more broad, is oral argument still happening at the rate that it did 10, 15, 20 years ago? Or are you seeing changes in that frequency as well? Well, one of the reasons that uh, uh, there has always been a, a thriving appellate bar in California is uh, uh, oral argument is mandatory in the uh, California uh, state appellate courts. They are required to offer uh, oral argument unless you uh, affirmatively waive it. Uh, at the federal level, uh, that's something that appellate uh, folks, the appellate bar and appellate judges talk about a lot. 
at, uh, at at gatherings and panel discussions and that sort of thing. There is a view uh, that is by no means uh, unanimous, but is not at all uncommon among appellate judges that oral argument is very important because otherwise it's the one it's the one and only opportunity that you get to be face to face with the people making the decision. Otherwise, it's just a matter of you e-file a brief. Uh, if you're an appellate, you e-file another brief. And then, yes, yeah, six months or whatever later, a, a decision suddenly uh, comes over the, the transom. And there are a lot of judges that think it's crucial for the for that reason. Uh, you're right. It's get, In the federal courts, it's gotten much less common uh, and uh, also gotten a good bit shorter than it was back in the uh, uh, the old classic days. But uh, uh, there's no shortage of uh, appellate arguments in the California state courts. Do you have any Zoom-based or other video conference-based oral arguments during the pandemic when it closed courts? And what was your experience there? <laughs> you know, the, uh, uh, the one that I did, I had the uh, uh, pleasure of being the co-counsel rather than the arguing counsel. So I got to watch. Uh, but it was the most extraordinary oral argument I've ever seen. Uh, the California courts, I do a lot of analytics on uh, uh, oral arguments in addition to other things. Uh, the California Supreme Court in particular has gotten dramatically quieter, uh, as in fewer questions, since it went to uh, uh, all uh, uh, Zoom arguments. But we were in the D.C. Court of Appeals. And uh, they let the argument go on for 90 minutes. Wow. Uh, it was the longest oral argument I've seen in 30, 36 years of uh, uh, doing this. Uh, fortunately, my uh, uh, lead counsel put on an, uh, an amazing performance, but I would not, even for all the years I've been doing this, I would not have wanted to be in her shoes. Maybe there is a, a coffee IV drip or a five-hour drip because <laughs> that's on your feet for 15 minutes is going to fry your brain. But uh, much longer for a 90-minute ar argument, I can imagine, would be very difficult. Um, well, it's a uh, uh, it, it's something that you really have to get used to. You have the advantage of there are uh, it, it's easier to consult things than it is when you're uh, literally sitting in front of the judges. So it's a somewhat different art form, and uh, uh, it would be interesting to see analytics on the lower uh, courts to see if they also have gotten uh, uh, quieter during the Zoom era. Let's take a step toward that. Obviously, again, I want to focus our conversation on your blogging efforts. But before we go there, you hinted at this. Can you talk a little bit about what your business development and marketing efforts were over your career, especially once you became and specialized? in appellate work and how that journey led to you blogging? Well, there are uh, two fundamental insights that you have to completely understand before you get into the uh, appellate business. One, I've already mentioned the uh, the fact that there are a lot of trial lawyers out there who think that they're perfectly capable of uh, uh, doing it themselves. But the second is, uh, uh, the 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 kind of uh, clients that uh, uh, firms like I've been with my entire career tend to uh, uh, represent large corporate clients. Uh, they have trial litigation uh, every day of the year. They always need trial lawyers. So that's a different, uh, uh, as the saying goes, a different kettle of fish. 
uh, appellate law is much more episodic. So there's not a, uh, a nearly as much need for uh, I want to be your appellate lawyer and it's going to generate, you know, $50,000, $100,000, whatever, month after month after month for years. There, Those clients are extraordinarily few and far between. So you have to understand what you're getting into. Um, as to how I got into to blogging, uh, no, no disrespect intended to... Uh, uh, anybody else that's in a, a similar business, but uh, uh, the uh, gentleman who runs the uh, company that uh, hosts my blogs, uh, his name is uh, Kevin O'Keefe. Kevin's a visionary uh, about this stuff, the, uh, the using blogging to uh, uh, generate uh, business development. And uh, over the years that I've been with him, uh, Kevin has become a good friend. And uh, we worked the we worked the uh, the plan out over the course of a number of dinners together. He pointed out I was in the process of writing a uh, what I thought was going to be an analytics uh, law review article, and he pointed out that uh, one of the legendary stories. Uh, and before I tell this, I'll apologize to Tom just in case this this uh, uh, urban legend is in some sense not entirely true. But the, the urban legend is that Tom Goldstein at SCOTUS blog uh, built his practice from the ground up simply by tracking uh, circuit splits on his blogs. And when he spotted a circuit sp a split, he would find a test case and offer his services to the, uh, uh, the test case. But he, he established his expertise through the blogs. Well, Kevin pointed out there's nothing particularly SCOTUS specific about that business plan. You can uh, you can do that business plan over and over. There are Supreme Courts all over the country. Uh, and that led to uh, what was going to originally be a one off uh, law review article. And uh, at this point would have been long since forgotten uh, being first the Illinois Supreme Court review because I was practicing in Chicago at the time. And uh, a couple of years later, the uh, uh, the California Supreme Court review. Before you moved into blogging, what were some of the tactics that you deployed to try and bring in business? Was this more of a cross-selling type practice where it was incumbent upon you to make sure outside of Horvitz that your colleagues could send you business from their trial work? Or were you out there networking at appellate events and doing the normal kind of playbook for attorneys who wanted to build their book of business? I was to a great extent doing the normal kind of uh, uh, playbook. I was in, uh, involved in a lot of bar organizations and uh, uh, appellate bar organizations to uh, 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 talk to my colleagues about ex exactly these kinds of uh, uh, issues. Um, the advantage of being at Horvitz uh, was also it was kind of the flip side of the disadvantage in the same sense that uh, we couldn't do cert certain sorts of things because there were no trial lawyers. Uh, uh, we were less of a threat to a trial lawyer who thinks if I refer this to an appellate lawyer, they're going to take the trial business. Uh, at Horvitz, we couldn't because none of us were trial lawyers. Uh, so th that has its... Uh, uh, had its own advantage, but yes, before I got into uh, uh, the the blogging, that was the the main focus of uh, uh, my business development. Uh, and and one other one other thing, the uh, 
uh, maybe this happens to everybody when they've been to uh, been in the uh, the business for, for a uh, a certain amount of time. But uh, uh, my uh, most productive source of business uh, over the last 20, 15, 20 years of my career, uh, believe it or not, not, has been people that used to work for me, uh, uh, associates that I've uh, mentored a a surprising number of whom are now general counsel which i guess dates me yeah <laughs> uh, how long i've been at at this but uh uh some very big cases have been sent sent to me by people who used to work for me if they're sending you business i guess that means when they told you it's not you kirk it's me when they <laughs> left the business you know it's true right because if they hated your guts the last thing they would do is send you a big fat juicy matter for which you could get origination credit so let's be clear in case there's any self-doubt about what drove that decision for some of your former colleagues at least it's on it's on good terms you make an interesting point that unintentionally with tom goldstein and the blogging and we'll dive into it in a minute here but all of those attorneys who came up doing networking events going flying across the country to speak at a conference once or twice a year, writing an occasional law review article. You contrast that to the type of media that's available today through podcasts like this, through videos, through blogging. And if you reimagine a podcast as nothing more than a 30-minute or an hour-long speaking engagement, but produced every week or a couple times a month, or a blog post being the equivalent of a short presentation that's given once a week, that lives on the internet that's found if someone either is looking at your bio page or LinkedIn and they want to learn more about you or they're just searching the topic matter and they find your blog post. It's just so interesting how many attorneys still today, and I think they're, they're, that number is shrinking, but still there are some attorneys who can't see how these older school ways of generating business, which by the way still works, mm -hmm. how, how they translate so neatly to modern forms of content marketing and thought leadership marketing and the idea that they could be creating content at a higher frequency than they are able to speak at in terms of conferences or write at for law review articles it's a very interesting dynamic and how you can call your shot like what tom goldstein did what you're doing here which is when you hold out what i would consider to be your content shingle when you hang out your content shingle and you become known as someone in a particular practice area based on what you're writing about, mm -hmm. it's, it just becomes a no-brainer. If the man who is writing the California Supreme Court review isn't qualified to handle appeals before the California Supreme Court, that would be a problem, right? Like by actually naming it that, not just the subject matter, but, but coming out and saying, this is a California Supreme Court review. On one hand, you have something to live up to. You've got to make sure that your content is top of the line, that you are showing knowledge, giving wisdom, but at the same time, once you do that, you become the inevitable person to contact regarding an appellate matter in California or Illinois, because why the hell would you name your blog that if you didn't provide that coverage? It just, it's a fascinating way to brand your own content and then be seen as the leader or the authority, assuming that you fulfill your obligation of providing good, relevant, compelling content to your audience. Uh, that's exactly right. And uh, uh, when I was the uh, uh, national chair of the appellate practice at, at Cedric, uh, I used to tell the uh, the lawyers in my group that um, the days, if if it was ever true, that you could, uh, uh, so to speak, walk up to a stranger and say, hi, my name is X and I'm the best lawyer in the world. 
uh, are emphatically over and they're not coming back, that if someone can get on Google and Google your name and not know within two minutes what it is you do, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> uh, and the uh, as compared to speaking engagements, for example, uh, where if someone wasn't at the uh, the speech, uh, it sort of disappears into the ether. And even for people that were there, it's sort of their life goes on and they have other concerns and it kind of disappears. Um, I have thousands of blog posts that will be uh, live on the internet forever uh, and, and routinely get calls about exactly what you're talking about. The, uh, uh, the California Supreme Court uh, analytics uh, from clients, potential clients, and reporters, which is another thing that you don't necessarily think about when you're start, sort of getting into this. But being responsive to the press is another important part of this. And your content is your advocate 24-7, 365. It doesn't have to worry about the commute to and from the office. It doesn't have to worry about a sick child or a bank holiday. It is working for you all the time. And likewise, I'm not suggesting that attorneys should forego in-person events and speaking engagements. You have to go to those things, meet people, break bread with people, allow serendipity to happen in terms of meeting people that you might have not met except for going to that event. But certainly the content marketing side of marketing and business development for lawyers, I think, is really such an efficient way to go about building your practice. Let's dive into a little bit of the weeds here with your blogging. When you first launched the blogs, what kind of buy-in was required from the firm? Did you have to go through the normal checks and balances to make sure that this was going to be an effort on the up and up? Or were you left to your own devices and you were able to just go out there and start blogging without much oversight from your colleagues or the executive committee or marketers, et cetera? Uh, at least in the sorts of firms that I've been a, a part of, uh, there's no such thing as something that you can just go out on your own and uh, uh, do, particularly since um, I think it's imperative that you uh, uh, brand your blog with the name of your law firm, particularly when you're starting out, because uh, uh, if you have just founded your blog, uh, you're asking uh, readers to say, okay, this is what Kirk Jenkins thinks. Why should I care? As opposed to you have the name of the law firm behind it. Now, a, a, a mistake that a lot of people make, at least that I think is a mistake, is some people incorporate their blogs onto their law firm website. Um, not as in, here's a link to our blog, CaliforniaSupremeCourtReview.com but literally it's a page on the, the website. I think that's a mistake because it is more explicitly marketing at that point, as opposed to this is something, this is thought leadership by our attorneys. It's a, it's a, a marketing device. But um, uh, I got into uh, uh, to blogging in an, uh, in an odd way. It was uh, my career coming full circle. Um, I had uh, started out life before I was a lawyer as a, uh, I, I call myself a recovering economist. <laughs> uh, so I was uh, very comfortable with the idea of uh, uh, huge expanses of data and spreadsheets and all that kind of thing. So uh, when I discovered the world of uh, uh, analytics, which has been going for, um, uh, you hear the, the point made 
that uh, are we early adopters uh, in uh, the legal profession? Actually, we're phenomenally late adopters because in the academic world, uh, people have been using analytics to study appellate decision making for literally 100 years. Uh, the beginning of it is traced to a uh, law review article that was published in 1922. So um, uh, there's a lot to catch up on. And there's no question that's the way the world is going these days. Why the tilt? And spoiler alert, a lot of your content on your blogs focuses on analytics, and we'll get into that in a moment. Why dive into analytics? You mentioned your kind of economist brain wanting to rise above your legal brain in terms of the blogging. But in terms of a marketing and business development decision, why go analytics as opposed to hanging out your content shingle? This is the California Supreme Court review, and we're going to review all the cases that the Supreme Court decides, and we're going to hold ourselves out as authorities and lowercase e experts because we're covering the landscape here. I'm a big fan of niching down. Why niche down to analytics as opposed to staying at the top level with just merely analyzing what's happening at the court from a case law perspective? The answer is because that's uh, that's not a niche. Uh, there are a lot of people doing that. And there are a lot of places that you can get that information, uh, uh, beginning with the, the justias of the, uh, uh, the world. Uh, there are at least two or three other blogs that do exactly that, what you're talking about for the California Supreme Court. Uh, there is literally no one in my lane in I either Illinois or California, and it's um, uh, applicable across a broader swath of cases uh, once you, you dive into the, uh, the analytics. If I merely tell you, uh, well, the California Supreme Court decided Smith versus Jones today, this is what the facts were, this is what the ruling was, end of blog post. That doesn't necessarily tell you much about what's coming next, as opposed to if I tell you uh, the majority opinions are getting longer in the last 10 years and look into ways of proving why that would be so. Uh, these, If you bring this kind of case, this is the coalition you're looking for, this is your easiest path to four votes, uh, or even a question I get uh, a lot from uh, people, uh, how long's my wait likely to be? Uh, there, there are all kinds of questions that you, you, you can't answer if you do the, uh, the blog that you're talking about. Kirk, you just blew my mind and gave me an epiphany that I didn't really have. I guess that's the definition of an epiphany is I hadn't thought about this before. <laughs> but when you are talking about statistics and talking about the way that the court or a court kind of runs itself and the structure of it, it just takes on a different level of authority and knowledge and wisdom compared to merely the substance. If you were the go-to person for appellate litigation, or I should say appellate practice in California, and you could rattle off the leading precedents regarding certain areas of the law that your clients are coming to you for, that's all well and great and that has significant value to certain clients. But the idea that you could advise clients on, like you said, the time it takes for a case to be decided after oral argument or how the justices are aligning themselves for certain types of cases in terms of decisions and the lengths of the opinions, it really just adds to the level of authority because you are 
basically immersed in the goings-on of the court and not simply the product it's putting out in the form of its appellate opinions. Well, I'll give you a, a, a perfect example. There is a, um, I, for, I, I, you've seen a number of posts on the blogs over the years. Uh, uh, this is the conventional wisdom out there about this issue or that issue and looking at the data to see whether it's true. Uh, we've all heard the stories about uh, uh, going to an appellate argument, and uh, after the argument, the client asks, well, how did it go? And you find yourself saying, well, they were really engaged, and they were obviously prepared. <laughs> they had tons of questions. Well, the analytics has demonstrated this is a little less sharply true at the California Supreme Court than it is at the other courts that we've looked at. But the analytics have demonstrated that the uh, the side gets, that gets the most questions at oral argument is going to lose. That's fascinating to know, just to know that tidbit. So if the uh, uh, the court has a, uh, a huge number of questions uh, uh, for you, it doesn't indicate they're engaged. <laughs> it indicates you're in trouble. Uh, but there are all kinds of uh, 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 insights like that that are uh, uh, possible from the uh, uh, the data. The fundamental job of an appellate specialist uh, is to get four votes. And uh, I occasionally get questions about um, uh, value judgments. Is this or that a criticism? Uh, absolutely none of it is a criticism because my job is to get to four votes. And uh, their job is to decide the, the cases however they decide the cases. So uh, I, I'm, I'm merely looking to understand as opposed to uh, making any kind of a value judgment on uh, uh, any of this. But I will tell you one of the uh, 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 fun uh, techniques that has uh, emerged in recent years that um, uh, my, my biggest regrets in analytics because I could never publish it in a million years. Uh, it's called uh, authorship attribution. Uh, there is an analytic technique, uh, uh, text analysis, uh, that uh, demonstrates whether a a particular person actually wrote the uh, the piece of writing, and it's been applied by uh, several people who are not practicing appellate lawyers <laughs> to uh, try to determine uh, which Supreme Court justices wrote their own opinions and which ones uh, uh, farmed it out to the uh, uh, the clerks. So that's one that I will not be writing anytime soon <laughs> for obvious reasons. But there are uh, there are techniques to cover all of this stuff. One of the uh, the main reason that uh, I have uh, uh, candidly fallen a little behind on my publishing schedule over the uh, uh, the last few months as I'm in the process of uh, cleaning up the databases uh, to um, uh, develop an algorithm uh, for uh, both predicting. Uh, predicting re results is a somewhat uh, more difficult uh, topic, although a lot of researchers have done it with a high level of uh, uh, accuracy. Uh, but I'm interested in analyzing questions like um, uh, what kind of an impact do amicus briefs have? And all that can be done al algorithmically. And uh, hopefully in the next few months, I'll be uh, uh, publishing the, uh, the algorithms on the, uh, the court. Let's talk about the data, because 
if this if you had traditional blogs the data would normally be the cases decided by the particular court that you're covering or the kinds of cases that you're covering regardless of which court they came from if you've got a national practice or a statewide practice how do you where does the data come from is it already in a form that can be sliced, diced, and julienned, or do you have to, or your colleagues have to work on actually pulling the raw materials to even mold it into the kind of data that you can work with for the purposes of your post? And then what inspires you on certain posts? What is the reason why you're writing about one particular aspect of the court today and why you'll write about a different one in two, three weeks where you don't have the kind of drip, drip, drip of a new court case coming out dictating your coverage? Well, sometimes it's just a matter of curiosity. I find myself wondering why something is so or if something is so. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I did a whole series of uh, uh, posts analyzing um, conventional wisdom. Uh, the notion that a, uh, a petition for review to the California Supreme Court is a waste of money if you don't have a dissent below. That's not true. Uh, if you don't have a published decision below, that's somewhat more true, but not also not an absolute by a long shot. There are uh, all kinds of pieces like that to uh, uh, to analyze, but um, the uh, the constant drip, drip, drip. Um, uh, sometimes it's uh, uh, predicting. Uh, we're going to be getting into predicting the results of uh, cases that particularly that we're not involved in. But um, uh, we we track everything is the uh, the short answer to your dear, to your question. Uh, there are uh, 140 variables on every single case going back to 1990 in the uh, the database and um uh how do i get them they don't exist uh i know the uh uh people that are in the uh the ai and analytics divisions of most of the commercial vendors out there and every one of them has said uh the technology doesn't exist to do what you've done uh the way it was done is i literally had my hand on every single one of those uh uh, nearly 3,000 uh, opinions in uh, uh, in each state. Uh, it was, uh, the, the database was based on uh, something called the Supreme Court database that if you literally Google those words, you'll find it. Uh, that was built by, uh, originally by a couple of professors uh, and has now been expanded to, to track uh, every decision of the United States Supreme Court in history. Uh, and they track between 125 and 150 variables for uh, uh, for every single case. So that's how I uh, focused in on on uh, uh, particular variables. But uh, the short answer is I track everything. Did you ever say to yourself, gee, I wish there were 145 variables? You, how the hell did you know which variables to track beyond some more of the obvious ones, certain justices voting with other justices and dissents versus majority versus concurring and all of that kind of traditional, yeah, this is what's important about appellate cases and tracking appellate judges. How did you even know which variables to start tracking? Well, the answer is that's cheating to, <laughs> uh, to base it on uh, uh, particular votes or particular uh, dissents. Uh, a number of people have run this experiment in the uh, 
the academic literature, they built algorithms to protect the results, uh, predict the results of the uh, Supreme Court and uh, entirely based on information that was available before the decision came out. So it's not based on, well, justice so-and-so dissented, therefore the decision must be this. It's based on things you knew before the, the case came out. They then sent the legal files, the briefs off to a to groups of uh, uh, law professors and asked them to predict the results. Uh, now, a cynic might say that it wouldn't have been published if it hadn't come out this <laughs> way. But what I can tell you is, in every case, the algorithm uh, performed better than the professors did. Uh, so uh, they're, they're the, um, the goal of these things is to uh, uh, understand and predict based on information you have before the, uh, uh, before the decision comes out. Uh, that's what I did uh, back in the day. My thesis uh, as a, uh, an economist was a uh, regression model of federal monetary policy. And uh, once a month, you, you see the news media uh, wildly speculating what's going to happen, what's going to happen. Uh, well, the fact is, what's going to happen can be predicted with a high degree of accuracy based on information that we have before the meeting. Uh, and that's that's what I was doing there. And it's really still what I'm doing with the uh, uh, the California Supreme Court. I didn't even ask, when did you start building the database and how soon after the database did the blog post come? Um, roughly six months. It started in about 2010. Um, uh, uh, I blame Richard Posner for this, believe it or not. <laughs> Uh, I was at a, uh, a meeting of the uh, uh, California Academy of Appellate Lawyers, and I heard people talking about a new book called The Behavior of Federal Judges uh, that was written by uh, uh, then Judge Posner and uh, a couple of uh, uh, brilliant professors named William Landis and Lee Epstein. And um, I thought the book was uh, uh, fascinating, and it got all of those old economists uh, uh, nerves uh, jangling, and I was thinking, I could a I could totally do this, and b wouldn't this be fascinating to find out what you'd find out about what's really going on and how court decisions uh, get made? Uh, there are ongoing debates that the academics have been having forever about influences on uh, appellate decision making. Uh, questions this obscure. Um, does it make a difference in the vote of a particular justice holding ideology constant if that male justice is on a panel with one or more women? Um, you can you can multiply those questions endlessly, and a lot of them have been uh, have been looked into. But all of those are perfectly legitimate questions to look at the uh, the data and see what the data has to say. What was your life like those months when you were and years building the database? Was this a night and weekend project? How would you, with, I'm assuming, a full-time legal practice, be able to do this yourself? Did you have colleagues then? Do you have colleagues now who help you? What's the um, division of labor, if any? There is no division of labor associated with this. This has been completely a, a solo project. The short answer to your question is I was... Um, uh, used to it in the uh, the years leading up to that, I had uh, uh, written four books, uh, uh, a couple of which 
were um, uh, almost entirely written between midnight and 2 a.m. Um, I, I have, as I say on my personal website, uh, I consider myself a writer first and foremost. Uh, I have always done it. Uh, so it was a natural segue to, uh, uh, to get into this. Uh, and I was kind of used to the schedule. Uh, I, uh, I, I always have something, uh, uh, going on. Uh, I'm, I, I'm the kind of nerd that is, uh, uh, always reading six or eight books simultaneously. Uh, uh, so it was a, it, it was not a hard sell to get into a, a world where you're imposing an additional 10 or 15 hours of, uh, a week, week at work, week after week after week on yourself. Passion is one hell of a stimulant, and my wife reminds me frequently that I work more as the owner of my business than I did as a junior, mid-level, and senior associate at Deckert when I was there. And I tell her it's a whole different ballgame when I'm in control and when I have this passion for Absolutely. this. And if you are having to write interrogatories at 12 in the morning and do document review at three in the morning, that might be very different experience than you pouring over analytics or pouring over data sets that you're building and graphs you're building because you just love this stuff. And sometimes when it comes to marketing and BD efforts and really life generally, but for our purposes here, if a lawyer can find some aspect of marketing and business development that they really love, the time will fly by and there'll be no question about how can I make time for it? Because you won't be able to wait until you've gotten through your work day and you can turn from your work life to your marketing and BD life at 8.30, 9 o'clock at night for the next couple hours. It's exciting. So I can totally understand why this would be something that while it was in addition to your normal, quote unquote, regular law practice, there was still as much passion, if not more, for this project and plenty of energy to go around because it was so interesting to you on a very deep level. That's absolutely true. And there are uh, a number of stories kind of in the, the blogging world, the business development world, the content world uh, about that sort of thing. And the, the success stories are not as uncommon as you would think. Uh, one of I mentioned uh, Kevin O'Keefe earlier, and uh, one of his stories was a uh, a young lawyer that got into blogging, and uh, she'd always loved horses. Well, she started a an equine law blog, and it was a field that no one was in, and she has become a national authority and has a, a seven digit per year uh, a book of business today. And those stories absolutely happen. They happen to, I mean, it, it's, uh, uh, appellate is kind of a different, uh, a, a different animal. And as I said, more episodic, but uh, I, I've had years like that myself. And it's completely the result of the, uh, uh, the blogging uh, to a great extent, but more broadly, the content creation. So that's a very interesting distinction you make there. How would you distinguish the blogging from the content creation? Uh, well, in my case, they kind of have merged in uh, uh, recent times. I do. Um, uh, I, I have published several uh, op-eds in uh, uh, the last year or two about various issues of uh, uh, constitutional law, just because I've been uh, uh, doing constitutional law really for 35 years now. Uh, and, and that's fun, too. That's another uh, uh, passion. But um, a lot of my... Uh, 
speaking is uh, about analytics, uh, because I think it's something that the legal profession hasn't entirely gotten used to the idea yet. And as I uh, tell people at my uh, uh, panel discussions and speeches, if you haven't been in a, uh, a client beauty contest yet, where the, uh, the prospective client had the analytics on your law firm, uh, you probably have, and you just didn't realize it. And we're all going to have to learn to deal with this stuff, because even if you're not going to be immersed in it, you need to understand it. Because uh, there's a uh, an old story in the uh, uh, the analytics world about a uh, 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 an analytics study of used cars, and they were looking to uh, track the uh, uh, the uh, repair record of the uh, the cars. But sensors all over the cars ran a, a load of data, and when they crunched all the numbers, they concluded that the best single predictor of the uh, uh, repair um, uh, history of the car was that it be orange. <laughs> well, it goes to the uh, the most commonplace um, uh, insight in the uh, statistical world, which is uh, correlation is not equal to causation. But as I tell people in my uh, uh, in, in my speeches, uh, we lawyers are going to have to be able to distinguish between orange used cars and everything <laughs> else. On that somewhat related point, as we start to wrap up here, can you talk a little bit about when you began to see your blogging efforts bear fruit, whether they were oranges or other forms of fruit? When did you start to see results from that, whether it was speaking engagements, whether it was clients discovering you or prospective clients discovering you? And over time, have you been able to draw a relatively straight line from your blogging efforts, your research efforts, and new matters coming into the door because of those efforts? Uh, the short answer is yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, I have gotten uh, uh, calls from Fortune 500 companies that said, uh, we decided we need an appellate lawyer in your geographic area, and it doesn't take too long to figure out who the uh, authority is. Uh, I have gotten those kinds of calls uh, relating to the California Supreme Court, get them fairly frequently, in, in, in fact. I have gotten uh, calls from um, uh, people looking for uh, analytics-driven experts on the California court system, not a, really an analytics gig as opposed to a, uh, uh, an appellate lawyering uh, gig. But all of these areas cite the content creation. I've gotten uh, uh, calls uh, I do a yearly uh, year in review article for the uh, the magazine that goes out to the uh, uh, the California uh, bar uh, about the California Supreme Court, and I've gotten calls uh, coming off of that. Uh, so absolutely, there's a direct line. Um, the uh, the the channel of it that's easy to overlook but is equally vital. Uh, which comes in the uh, the first year or two, along with the uh, phone calls from prospective clients, is from uh, reporters. And you have to pay attention to that because it's another way of getting your, your name out there. Uh, it's invaluable to have it in the middle of a an article. Uh, uh, Kirk Jenkins, who uh, writes about the California Supreme Court, and we consulted him for his opinion 
about this, that, or the other. Um, I, it's invaluable, but absolutely, it produces uh, uh, produces work. And I want to just follow up on your point about you didn't call it repurposing and repackaging, but I'm going to call it repurposing and repackaging. When you regularly create content, whether through blogs, whether it's through third-party articles to Law360 or Reuters or what have you, when you've got content with your name on it, you could then repackage that, repurpose that to basically do whatever you think you need to do from a marketing and BD sense to talk to your clients, talk to prospective clients about that content in new and interesting ways. For example, you could give an annual review of your subject matter appellate decisions in California and analytics to prospective clients, to current clients, as a webinar, as a CLE. You have all this knowledge and wisdom spread out over these blog posts, but to be able to pull them together, write a trends piece looking back over the past year, also provide some insights and guidance in the form of predictions for next year, that is incredibly valuable. And you've already really done the work. You have to just take another step and synthesize it and maybe think about how to package it nicely for the purposes of these new uses. But you've already done the work. You would be a fool to leave those blog posts up there and just not do anything with it when you know there are clients and organizations, maybe even media members, clamoring for this information presented in an interesting and compelling way. That's absolutely true. And uh, I, I do that uh, uh, fairly routinely uh, with uh, uh, things like the uh, uh, the year in review. We do uh, 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 presentations about uh, what's going on at the uh, California Supreme Court that I routinely tag a uh, 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 15 minutes or a half hour of analytics on the uh, the tail end of. Um, but yeah, you have to market it or, or uh, repackage uh, your content as many ways as you can, uh, as long as you've carefully read your agreement with your publisher and know what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. Uh, I, I agree with you completely. You'd be a fool not to because it takes long enough to uh, to put this stuff together, you need to get as much value out of it as you possibly can. Attorneys aren't often recognized as the most efficient bunch of individuals. When it comes to repackaging your content, you might as well, because there's just so many more applications and ways to use that material and information you've already created, developed. Why not do it? Let's wrap up here with two last questions. Can you give some insight and guidance to in-house marketers at law firms regarding getting their lawyers off the sidelines when it comes to blogging and content marketing and thought leadership marketing efforts, and also to the attorneys themselves getting off the sideline. What would you tell in-house marketers and what would you tell lawyers about getting off the sidelines and getting onto the playing field with respect to blogging, article writing, speaking engagements, anything that could be viewed as a form of content marketing? Uh, thought leadership has never been as important as it is today, uh, particularly in uh, areas of the law that uh, one might see as being sort of generalist. Uh, appellate law is one example of that. I've heard uh, senior appellate lawyers say, well, the, our marketing challenge is we're experts in a process as opposed to any particular topic. But you have to demonstrate, I have expertise in this. You need, if you need X, I'm the, I, I'm the person to... Uh, uh, to come to, because uh, there are fewer generalists today than there have ever been. Uh, it's true in 
uh, trial lawyering, it's true in appellate lawyering. So as far as getting people off the uh, uh, the sidelines, you have to have the goods on your resume, uh, the um, uh, demonstrating your expertise. So it's absolutely a part of this business, uh, every bit as much as literally representing clients. You will get pushback. You will get pushback from people in your uh, your firm uh, saying things like it's it's really difficult to monetize that. Well, in fact, it's not uh, because it, it has it has monetized in in my case and it's monetized in a lot of cases. But you have to. That's like saying, well, I don't want to make that investment because it won't start uh, uh, producing income for two years or three years or four years or whatever. You still have to make the investment. And it is an essential part of this business to demonstrate what it is you do and what it is you bring to the uh, the table because uh, clients are more in control of the relationship. You ask at the outset about uh, being at Skadden in the 80s. Uh, the attorney was to a considerable degree uh, driving the bus back in those <laughs> days. Uh, the, the relationship has flipped. Uh, uh, clients control the relationship in a way that they never did back in those days. And frankly, that's a good thing. Uh, but the, what comes with that is uh, uh, you have to be in a position to prove what it is you claim you uh, you do. And that's where content creation comes in. Couldn't imagine ending this podcast episode on better, more appropriate words than what you just gave us. Kirk, if people are interested in reaching out to you, learning more about the blogging, learning more about using analytics when it comes to the law, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? The uh, websites are CaliforniaSupremeCourt.com and IllinoisSupremeCourt.com. Um, the Arnold and Porter website, you can call up my uh, uh, email, which is simply Kirk.Jenkins at ArnoldPorter.com. Uh, and it also has my uh, uh, office phone number. And uh, anybody is uh, uh, welcome to uh, uh, to reach out uh, uh, anytime. I look forward to it. Those are fantastic domain names for the blogs. And part two, we can discuss how you name a blog and how you get the right domain address so you can make sure that people find you even by accident. Kirk, thanks again so much for your time. I appreciate you being so generous with it. And I look forward to talking to you again sometime soon. Absolutely. Thank you very much for the invitation. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Legally Contented. Thanks so much for tuning in. Check out the episode show notes for more information about our guests and for links to resources that we discussed during the episode. We'd appreciate your feedback and recommendations for future guests. Email us at hello at legallycontented.com. Hello at legallycontented.com. We would appreciate if you told your colleagues about this podcast, if you subscribe to the podcast and urge them to subscribe as well. And while you're at it, maybe you could even rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, thanks so much for tuning in to Legally Contented.